From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tumors, both benign and malignant, can originate in the bones or the soft tissues of the trunk and extremities. They are generally referred to as musculoskeletal tumors. Now, bone tumors most commonly affect the pelvis or the long bones, that is, the arms and the legs. The most common types of soft tissue tumors usually occur in the arms and legs and the abdomen. On today's program, we'll talk with a Mayo Clinic expert on musculoskeletal tumors. Also on the program, we'll learn about LASIK surgery to correct common vision problems. And treatment options for appendicitis. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, both benign and malignant tumors or neoplasms can arise from any soft tissue, like muscle, or any bony tissue of the arms, the legs, the pelvis, the shoulder, or the trunk, meaning the ribs and spine. Now, if the tumors are malignant or cancerous, they're called sarcomas, and they can metastasize or spread elsewhere, causing all kinds of trouble. Compared to tumors at other sites, like the breast, prostate, kidney, or lung, tumors of the bones and soft tissues are relatively rare and are often treated by a team of physicians, one of whom is a surgeon called an orthopedic oncologist, someone specially trained to manage these patients. And here to join us today is the Division Chair of Orthopedic Oncology at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Peter Rose. Welcome to the program, Dr. Rose. It's nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Rose, nice to see you. Thanks, Tom. Uh, So it's a complicated subject. It took years of training for you to be able to do what you do. Um, And let's divide it up into two segments. First of all, bone tumors and then soft tissue tumors and then benign versus malignant. And let's talk about the relatively good to start with, and that would be benign bone tumors. How often do you see those? You know, they're pretty common that we see. There are a lot of different things which can arise in the bone, most often during development in childhood, different cysts or areas where the calcium doesn't precipitate fully into the bone. And these can lead to a benign bone tumor. And there are other benign bone tumors which can arise most commonly in young adulthood, which can be locally destructive. But what separates a benign bone tumor from a malignant or a cancerous bone tumor is the benign tumor is fundamentally a local problem. So our job is to control it in the knee or the shoulder or wherever it is because it can severely compromise or even destroy the function of the knee if it's neglected. But thankfully, they don't have the potential to spread elsewhere in your body and cause a threat to your life. So we balance our treatment to maintain function while also getting control of the tumor. These can occur in any age group, correct? Yes. They're more common in children or young adults, but they can occur in any age. And how do these kids usually present? It's usually pain is the most common way that we find a benign bone tumor. They can also present with a mass, a bump on the leg. About one in 10 times, they'll have a fracture through them. So a child is doing some regular childhood activity, playing soccer on a swing set or the like, and they'll break their arm or their leg. It's usually a very mild fracture, but it breaks through bone that's been weakened by this. And that hurts. Yes. (laughs) So once you see these patients and you suspect that there may be something wrong with their bone, what do you do next? I I assume a plain x-ray gives you a lot of information? X-ray is the single most important test that we have for this. And oftentimes we can come to a certain diagnosis or narrow the diagnosis down to one of a couple entities just with an x-ray alone. 
And if that doesn't give you enough information, what's the next test you might do and why would you do it? Usually the next test would be an MRI scan. And an MRI scan allows us to look with detail into the bone and into the bone marrow to understand how a tumor is behaving there. And if we really need to, we'll get a biopsy of something. A biopsy is where a small sample of the lesion is taken for a pathology team to study under the microscope to give us a fairly definitive diagnosis. And then once you have identified the tumor, do most of these require surgery? No. uh, Many of them, particularly the ones in childhood, uh, children will just grow out of on their own as the bone grows. There are some cysts which will commonly resolve with age, or if a child has a fracture through the cyst, sometimes that alone will cause it to heal. But there are a large number of these which do require some form of a surgery, usually to go in, clean out the area of abnormal tissue, often put bone graft in. If there's a worry that the bone is weakened from the presence of the tumor, we may have to put in a plate or screws to help strengthen it as it heals. And then these bone grafts serve as scaffolding for their own new bone to grow into and uh, ultimately they're resorbed and the bone returns to its normal state. That's right. In the older individual, are they a different kind of tumor that you see, benign tumor? You know, the more common tumor that we see in an older individual for benign tumor, for example, is a giant cell tumor bone. And this is something which is classically in younger adults up until about middle-aged. And these are locally destructive. They will dissolve away the calcium from the bone. They'll lead to pain. They'll lead to compromise of the joint function. And if you don't get a hold of them and on top of them, then they can really compromise the bone. These are ones which essentially always require surgery to go in and clear out the tumor itself, treat the margin or the boundary of the tumor, and then fill things up with bone graft or bone cement to restore the strength. Where are they most often found? Most commonly about the knee. For reasons that uh, we're not entirely clear about, the most common location of a bone tumor is near the end of the femur or the top of the tibia. Yeah, interesting, and nobody really knows why. Hmm. All right, let's talk about the malignant bone tumors. And let's start with children because they're uh, not too uncommon uh, in children. And the most common one, osteosarcoma. Tell us about that. So osteosarcoma is pretty rare primary cancer of bone. And it usually arises in children or young adults. There are a couple hundred total in the United States each year, probably about five or 600. And this is a cancer where the cancer itself arises in the bone almost always, occasionally outside of the bone. It'll grow pretty aggressively. And surgery and chemotherapy are the key aspects of the treatment of children with osteosarcoma. Uh, Either surgery or chemotherapy alone is very rarely successful, but the two together give a cure rate that's come about tremendously in the last several decades. We're up to probably at least a 75% rate of long-term cure in these children. Yeah, and when I started, it was 20%. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know why it happens? Is it a family history, or why do children get that? In most cases, we don't know. There are a couple of rare genetic conditions in which we know that children are predisposed to develop bone cancer, but honestly, the vast majority of children who develop bone cancer don't have one of those conditions. Help our audience understand the difference between, you mentioned primary cancer of, of bone Uh, Tell us the difference between that and secondary or metastatic. Sure. So I think I would say that most cancers that we're all familiar with come in adults usually, and they either come from the blood elements, leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, or they come from the organs, lung cancer, liver cancer, breast cancer, the like. In those cases, in an advanced state, cells from the cancer can escape land in the bone, and grow as a metastasis. And so this is a situation where that lung cancer has spread to the bone, breast cancer has spread to the bone. Those we call secondary bone tumors because the primary source of it 
is the organ or the cell which lays outside of the bone. A primary bone cancer, on the other hand, is where the cancer arises directly within the bone. And again, these are much less common. About 1% or less of all cancers are primary sarcomas of bone or soft tissue. Now, you mentioned the, the fact that chemotherapy and surgery are part of the regimen for osteosarcoma. There's another childhood tumor called Ewing sarcoma. Um, but you often have a team of individuals who treat these patients, and, and who all is involved? So every one of these children has a pediatric oncologist, and he or she is the person who coordinates the overall care, and they supervise and administer the chemotherapy. And then for osteosarcoma, essentially all children require surgery to take the cancer out. And unlike the benign tumors we talked about earlier, where we talked about cleaning out the tumor and filling it in, the treatment of a cancer is very different. You, these are resected in a single piece with a cuff or a boundary of normal tissue around them. It's a much different and a much bigger operation where the focus is primarily on getting the cancer out. And then secondarily, doing everything you can to maximize function. Now, with Ewing sarcoma, which is another childhood cancer, the treatment is chemotherapy. Surgery is used in almost all cases in children, but there's also a potential role for radiation as well. And so a pediatric radiation oncologist is involved in the care of those children as well. And you do the surgery before? In most cases, the chemotherapy is done for about three months. Surgery is done to take the cancer out, and then further chemotherapy is done. And as a part of that, you get a chance to look at the cancer after it's been treated for three months and analyze it and assess the response that it's having. Now, the chemotherapy that you give these kids, one of the agents that has been around forever, one of the original agents is called methotrexate. And the kids used to get so ill, so sick, and they would vomit all day long. But the, the, the drugs to prevent that are so much better than they used to be. Right? That's absolutely right. I mean, chemotherapy is difficult on any patient and any family with a child going through it. But the side effects, which have been so difficult in the past, while still real today, have been ameliorated a lot by advances in other supportive care. So the survive, five-year survival rate for kids with osteosarcoma is now 75%? You know, it's approaching that. I think that's a goal that we'd like to see. Whereas, again, it used to be in the pre-chemotherapy era, it was dramatically less than that. And what about Ewing sarcoma? Probably fairly similar. In most studies, long-term follow-up of Ewing's and osteosarcoma, the results parallel each other. Any other childhood uh, tumors that you see uh, in your practice? You know, those are the primary malignant cancers that we see. There are some rare other tumors. There are some soft tissue tumors that can arise in childhood. There are what are called germ cell tumors, which are almost embryonic remnants, which can arise down by the sacrum in those bones. But osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma make up the bulk of what we treat for bone tumors in children. All right. We've been talking about bone tumors with Dr. Peter Rose, who is division chair of orthopedic oncology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss the other type of musculoskeletal tumors, tumors of the soft tissue. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking with Dr. Peter Rose. He's an orthopedic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic and chair of the Division of Orthopedic Oncology and an expert on tumors of the musculoskeletal system. All right, so let's talk about soft tissue tumors. We'll, sh we'll switch gears. And again, benign and malignant. And let's talk about the benign ones, more common than the malignant tumors. Absolutely. So less than 1% of soft tissue lumps and bumps are cancers. So the vast majority of things that we feel... If there's a bump somewhere in our body that's in the flesh, thankfully, the vast majority are benign. 
And uh, is lipoma the most common one, fatty tumors? That's right. Benign fatty lipomas are extremely common. They most commonly occur underneath the skin, less than two inches in size. They're soft, fleshy, mobile, and usually have no clinical consequence whatsoever. And when do you decide that you might be a good idea, it might be a good idea to take it out? Well, uh, first thing, if we're worried about the diagnosis for something, then with modern imaging, we can usually get a very good understanding of what something is ahead of time. And for fatty tumors, our imaging is excellent to define those. And then the decision to remove a benign soft tissue tumor would be if it's causing pain or limitation of function or if it's showing growth. Because if it's starting to grow, ultimately it's just going to get bigger. It's going to need to be taken out. And so at a convenient time before something becomes very, very large, it's usually safer and easier to remove on an elective basis. What are the reasons that if someone does have a lump, uh, what are the features that would uh, tell them that they really ought to go see somebody about it? Probably the most concerning thing is if it's growing. So, you know, almost all benign soft tissue lumps and bumps are latent in size. They don't grow, or if they have any growth, it's extremely slow. So something which is growing is of concern. Something which is bigger than about the size of a golf ball is something that we'd worry about. And something which seems to be deep in the muscle or the deeper parts of the flesh as opposed to right under the skin. Those are the characteristics that we find worrisome. At pain? Yes, although it's relatively rare for a soft tissue mass in and of itself to cause pain unless it's heavily compressing on a nerve or heavily infiltrating into a nerve, and those are less common. Are you likely to get additional ones, even if you remove the one that just drives you crazy? Usually not. There are a couple of situations where people have multiple lipomas or multiple lumps throughout their body, but for most benign soft tissue tumors, we go in and we peel them off. We do what's called a marginal resection. Our dissection is just on the margin between what's normal and what's abnormal, and the risk of recurrence is usually 5% or less. So let's talk about the malignant ones. Pretty uncommon, but you see a fair amount here at Mayo Clinic. That's right. So again, uh, about two out of every 300 soft tissue lumps and bumps is a cancerous sarcoma. And so sarcoma is a primary cancerous tumor that arises directly from the bone or the flesh. So for soft tissue tumor, it'd be a soft tissue sarcoma. What makes you suspect that it's malignant versus benign? You know, we'd look at the growth and the presenting characteristics like we just said. And for anything that we have a worry about, you end up getting an image of it. And in almost all circumstances, an MRI scan in 2019 is our best way to image these. If we see something on an MRI scan that's worrisome, it can either be removed or biopsied so you understand exactly what it is ahead of time. And the biopsy, you can do that with a needle now, right, and get the answer almost all the time? Right. In about 90% of cases, we can have a tumor sampled with a small needle under local anesthesia that can get essentially a tiny little plug, about a sixteenth of an inch in diameter, that can then be studied under the microscope to understand what it is ahead of time. And why is that important? You know, even if you know you're going to take something out, sometimes you take things out differently depending upon what they are. And for cancerous tumors, there's often a role to consider pretreatment with radiation therapy and, in some cases, chemotherapy before you would take something out. So up front, you give them radiation. Explain the theory behind that. Yeah. So part of what makes a cancer a cancer, particularly for soft tissue sarcoma, is the ability for it to have microscopic seeds or tentacles that extend away from the main body of the tumor. 
And they're frankly too small for us to see with our eyes at surgery and too small for our imaging studies to see. But we know if we don't account for those, there's a high risk of the cancer coming back. So if you just go in and peel something out, even though it seems like it's encapsulated and it's cancerous, it's not, right? That's right. The risk of recurrence is probably at least 40%. And recurrence ends up with loss of function and oftentimes a very poor ultimate outcome. Because it can then metastasize or spread elsewhere, and that creates a huge problem. That's right. So we found that the use of radiation significantly decreases the risk of recurrence. And radiation can be given either before surgery or after surgery. That decision is a bit individualized for each different patient, but in most cases in our practice, we give radiation before surgery. And there are sometimes we actually give it during surgery as well. If it's little tentacles, though, and the seeds, why wouldn't you? Do you do chemotherapy as well? So chemotherapy is, at this point in time, probably best described as investigational for Mm -hmm. patients with soft tissue. Sarcomas, it's not experimental. We know that there can be a benefit, but we're still investigating exactly which patients and which types of soft tissue sarcomas have the best benefit. And in fairness, we think about surgery and radiation as being primarily local control modalities, meaning they're used to control the cancer where it lays in the leg. Chemotherapy being a medicine that's carried in your blood as its best effect if we're concerned that there's a high risk that microscopic seeds may have escaped the main cancer and be elsewhere in your body. Because as it's, the medicine goes through your blood, it goes through all of your body. Mm-hmm. So if the seeds are there, hopefully they see it. If you have given the patient preoperative radiation, can you go in and just peel out the tumor and have it not come back? You know, there are times that we have to do what's called a marginal or close resection of one of these tumors if it's right against the blood vessel or right against a major nerve. We've actually found that with preoperative and sometimes intraoperative or in-surgery radiation, we can still have excellent control even when we peel things off. The key thing is you still can't cut into it. You still have to have a clean margin, but it can be clean but close in many circumstances with good radiation. All right. The soft tissue sarcomas, uh, the malignant uh, tumors of the soft tissues mostly occur in older individuals. What's the survival rate with the modalities that you've discussed? They're usually middle-aged to older adults, and the survival rate varies by the grade and the stage. So stage is whether the cancer is localized or has spread, and grade is whether it is of low or high aggressiveness. So for localized cancers that are low-grade, our long-term survival is often approaching 90% if we can get a good resection on something. For high-grade cancers, unfortunately, that drops down to probably the 60% range at this time. There are some areas in which we're doing better, but there's some patients who just have an adverse presentation no matter what. Well, it really doesn't matter whether we're talking about bones uh, cancers or soft tissue cancers. The survival rates are much better than they used to be. That's absolutely right. We've been talking with Dr. Peter Rose, who is chair of the Division of Orthopedic Oncology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Dr. Rose, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you both. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Ian Roth will join me as co-host. We'll learn about LASIK surgery to improve your vision. And later on in the program, how an appendicitis is treated. Is surgery always necessary? Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Frostbite is more common and often more serious than many people think. 
The good news is it's fairly easy to avoid. That's according to Dr. Sanj Kakkar, a Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon. As winter drags on and temperatures drop way down, your risk of cold-related injuries such as frostbite can go way up. Dr. Kakkar says frostbite is literally a freezing of the tissues. And he sees frostbite, for example, when the temperature is 5 degrees Fahrenheit, even with minimal wind chill. If the wind chill drops below negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit, which is not unheard of in the northern half of the U.S., frostbite can set in within half an hour. The areas most vulnerable to frostbite are your nose, ears, fingers, and toes. With the milder forms, you can get some pain and some numbness, and the skin can change color. It could be red, it could be white, or it can be blue. And you can get blisters on your hands. Dr. Kakar says in the worst cases, the tissues die, and you may need surgery to remove it. So who's most at risk? Those most at risk are people with conditions such as diabetes, the elderly, the very young, or people who've had frostbite before. So when old man winter shows the ugly side, make sure to keep all areas of skin properly covered and stay hydrated. And now let's talk about blood pressure and menopause. Blood pressure generally increases after menopause. Some doctors think this increase suggests that hormonal shifts related to menopause may contribute to high blood pressure. Others think an increase in body mass index in menopausal women may play a greater role than hormonal changes. Menopause-related hormonal changes can lead to weight gain and make your blood pressure more reactive to salt in your diet, which in turn can lead to higher blood pressure. Some types of hormone therapy for menopause may also contribute to increases in blood pressure. To control your blood pressure both before and after menopause, focus on a healthy lifestyle. Maintain a healthy weight. Eat heart-healthy foods such as whole grains, fruits, and veggies. Reduce the amount of processed foods and salt in your diet. Exercise most days of the week. Manage stress. Limit or avoid alcohol. And if you smoke, stop. If necessary, your health care provider may prescribe medications to help lower your blood pressure. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Ian Roth. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you suffer from vision problems like nearsightedness or farsightedness, refractive surgery may be a treatment option to correct or improve your vision. Laser eye surgery reshapes the transparent dome-shaped structure in the front of your eye. That's your cornea to correct vision problems. It's known as uh, refractive errors. The most common of these procedures is known as LASIK surgery. And here to help us understand how it's done and who is a candidate is Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist, Dr. Leo McGuire. Welcome to the program, Dr. McGuire. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. How many people are candidates for laser eye surgery? Well, there's about 25 million people in the United States uh, that have nearsightedness. And uh, most of those would be a reasonable candidate. But... It also has an expense involved with it, and if you actually look at the number of people that, number one, want it, and then have the ability, the financial ability to purchase it, it's you know obviously a smaller number. I mean, there's you know hundreds of thousands of them done in the United States every year. What what kind of conditions might disqualify uh, somebody from having this surgery? What, who is not a good candidate for this? That's a good question. It gets into what we tell people when they first come in and visit us. We say overall it has a very high success rate, one of the highest uh, patient-perceived improvements in quality of life. But that's all qualified in the fact that you select your patients well. 
There's a number of things we look at. Uh, one of the major drivers is dry eye. We know that if you don't have dry eye before laser correction surgery, either LASIK or PRK, you're not that likely to have prolonged, persistent dry eye after. But you have to screen well for it and ask specific questions. For instance, a lot of people who come in for uh, laser refractive surgery do it because uh, they're become, starting to become uncomfortable with their contact lenses. And you have to ask about that because a lot of times they're uncomfortable because their eyes eye. are getting dry and they can't float the bow to the lens anymore. And that's a person that's also at risk for getting into persistent dry eye problems after. You have to look for incomplete blink. You have to ask what kind of environment they work in, those kind of uh, things like that. We also look at specifics related to the thickness of the cornea, uh, and we also look at specifics related to the curvature of the cornea. There's some people that are relatively higher risk if they're outliers from the normal range. When uh, we were doing the intro, we mentioned both nearsightedness and farsightedness. Mm -hmm. Are both of those corrected through a laser, a laser eye surgery? Yes, you can. You can correct a wider range of nearsightedness than farsightedness. Most farsighted people are done in their uh, 50s, whereas nearsighted people are usually done in their 20s and 30s and 40s. So how, how are these laser procedures performed? How do you actually correct uh, nearsightedness or farsightedness? So let's start with nearsightedness. And nearsighted people, when they look far away, their focusing system is too strong. So you have to flatten the curvature of the cornea and make it less strong. And we aim at the curve, post-operative curve, that lets you see well 20 feet and out. And then the lens inside your eye can autofocus from 20 feet in, at least until you're 45, and that starts to go away. If you look at the cornea cross-section, almost all its thickness is collagen, same material that's in a tendon, it's just, it's transparent. It's designed in a way to be transparent instead of opaque, like a, a tendon is. And so we treat that tendon layer and uh, flatten it for nearsightedness, steepen it for farsightedness to do the correction. You can do that either with LASIK or PRK. Is a real laser used for laser eye surgery? Yeah. It is, um, but it's a different kind of laser than people are used to. When people think of lasers, they think of things that either burn or yeah. explode. Boom. <laughs> so that's, that's not what happens with this at all. This is a, a cold evaporation laser. If you can remember way back into high school biology, we're told that we're carbon-based mm -hmm. organisms, and we're also told that the carbon, carbon bonds are so strong you can't break them. The laser is applied to the surface, completely breaks all the carbon-carbon bonds in the first one four thousandths of a millimeter of tissue that it touches. And that only that's only half the incident energy, and the other two-thirds are released by releasing that material from the surface at supersonic speed. So there's nothing left over to cause heat or mechanical damage to the corneal tendon underneath. And that's why you can sculpt it so exquisitely and also not have to worry about scar damage and thermal damage because there just isn't any. Does it last 20 years later? Do you have to have it redone? 
It's very unusual for it to destabilize over time. There are some conditions where that's more likely. There are people who have a condition called keratoconus that develops during the teens and the 20s. And sometimes if it starts where they begin life of the normal curvature and they develop distortion over time, we do screening. So we're much more likely to catch that and not do surgery early. But some people who have it late can have a distortion over time. Uh, and other, the other thing that happens is that sometimes people who are nearsighted, they'll say, oh, this worked great until I'm 45 and now... I'm starting to have trouble seeing up close. That's a different problem. That's an autofocus problem. Um, and everybody, if you're born with 20-20 vision, starts to have trouble reading it near. Because just like an autofocus camera, instead of pulling from 20 feet up to where your book is, down only pulls from 20 feet into like two feet, and your book's at one foot. And is it changing? What's new? You know, it's a very mature field there's some fine-tuning for people have more complex distortion. Um, there's some things that can take people who maybe were unintentionally worked on and have a distortion post-op that can uh, slow it down or stop it before it gets any worse. Um, but overall, it's a pretty stable, um, mature part of the um, medical practice, much different than the Wild West days of the, <laughs> the 1980s and so on. We've been talking about laser eye surgery with Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Leo McGuire. Thanks for joining us, Dr. McGuire. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss whether appendicitis always requires surgery. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Ian Roth. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you develop right-sided pain in your abdomen, it could be the telltale sign of appendicitis. Appendicitis is an inflammation of the appendix, which is a finger-shaped pouch that projects from your colon on the lower right side of your abdomen. If you have appendicitis, you probably assume you're headed for surgery. And in a lot of pain. That's the other thing I always assume. But a recent study in Finland found that treatment with antibiotics can be an option in some cases, helping people avoid surgical removal of the appendix, known as an appendectomy. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic Trauma and Critical Care Specialist, Dr. Erica Loomis. Welcome to the program, Dr. Loomis. It's great to meet you. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Well, the first thing that we noticed, that we've learned... Is that an appendix is not a kidney? Yeah, both, both Ian and I thought it was a kidney shaped well, a thing. Kidney shaped separate organ. It's connected to the colon. That was the first thing we learned. It actually <laughs> hangs right off the right colon. Yep, yep. It's its own little entity, but is attached to the colon. So why is it that it's even there? If you can take it out and it's not a big deal, why do we even have an appendix? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, it's a vestigial organ, um, which means you know created years and years ago when humans were developing. It doesn't serve any purpose these days. Um, some think it was some type of additional digestive organ way back when, when we had different diets or different lifestyles, like back caveman days we're talking. Um, but today it doesn't do anything for us, um, except potentially get appendicitis. You can also get cancer within there. So it's okay to have it removed. We don't remove it unnecessarily. We don't just take them out if you don't need to have the surgery. But if you do need surgery, then it's, you will notice no difference once your appendix is removed. Hmm. 
what what can cause the problems with your appendix, the inflammation? Yeah, so as you kind of described in the opening, it's a finger-like projection that comes off the colon, and it has an opening at the mouth of it, if you will, that connects it to the colon. And if that gets obstructed or something goes in there that closes off that opening, it can set up a pattern of inflammation and swelling, and it gains uh, collects fluid in there and then increases inflammation. And you kind of can see it just starts to spiral and you get what's called appendicitis. And so does trauma to the body happen? Not necessarily. It doesn't mean that you got hit with anything. You don't necessarily do anything that causes you to get that. It just happens. It's spontaneous or happens at random, Um, can affect all age ranges, children to elderly, all different, you know, backgrounds. If you have hypertension or you don't, it doesn't matter. Anybody can get appendicitis. And what are the warning signs? Yeah. um, So kind of like you mentioned in the opening, right-sided pain is classic. Uh, Not everybody has that, but most people do. A lot of people describe pain that kind of starts around their belly button and then migrates to that right side. Um, That's pretty classic for appendicitis. A lot of people have nausea. Some have vomiting. Usually just don't feel very well or malaise, we call that. Uh, Some people have a fever. And the pain is such that it typically brings them to the emergency department. And then, so somebody comes in with these symptoms, maybe how are you going to diagnose it? Classically, or at this point, you know, we diagnose with a, with a CT scan or a CAT scan. It's probably the best way to diagnose appendicitis. It's certainly not the only way. Ultrasound is definitely up and coming. Ultrasound can be very um, technician dependent and radiologist reading dependent. So not everybody is a great candidate for that, but we do ultrasound or we do a CAT scan. If it's not diagnosed soon enough? Will an appendix always burst? Yeah, we used to think that. We used to think if you get appendicitis and we don't do something, it's definitely going to burst. But that's actually something that came out of this study, that not all appendixes end up bursting. Yeah, so let's talk about that. I never knew that that was even an option. Yeah, to do antibiotics. So they actually did their initial study, as you mentioned, it's coming out of Finland, um, probably one of the only places they could do a study like this. Um, And their initial study was this is the five-year update that came out right now. So their initial results came out in 2013, or completed in 2013 and published in 2015. And what they found is with some conditions in there for age and the appearance of the appendix and some things like that, they treated about half the patients with antibiotics, a very uh, strict regimen of antibiotics, and they treated half the patients with surgery. And the outcomes they found, they were looking to see is are the antibiotics no worse than surgery, which is kind of a funny way to phrase that, but they wanted, that's what they were trying to prove initially. They actually didn't prove that. They didn't get to that point in the study. But they did find that in general it seemed safe. The patients who ended up ultimately needing their appendix out, they didn't have additional complications or other challenges. And now they've looked at those same patients five years later to see who got appendicitis in those five years, how many of them needed surgery, and what were the outcomes of those patients. And they found about 39 to 40% of patients who were treated with antibiotics up front ultimately got Hmm. appendicitis um, in that five-year period. Most of them got it in the first year um, and then needed to go on and have treatment. And that treatment in this study was uh, typically surgery. Um, so that's, that's really what they found. I guess to me, the takeaway is, you know, in the right conditions for the right patient, antibiotics are a potential option. Um, with the caveat that mm, in about five years, you have a 40% chance of getting appendicitis again. What are the risks of surgery? Because it, it kind of, 
it makes you wonder why why don't we treat this like wisdom teeth where if we don't need it just get rid of it before uh, everybody. it causes a problem yeah and um so typically in this country we do appendectomies laparoscopically or with small incisions so we make small incisions we put in kind of long handled instruments and a camera we take the appendix out that way it's almost i would say 90% of the time done that way very rarely are we doing open appendectomies on a routine patient now the study actually did open appendectomy routinely so mm-hmm. it kind of makes their results a little bit tougher to interpret from a surgery perspective. The reason we don't just do surgery on everybody is, you know, there are risks with surgery, right? There's risk, small risk of bleeding, small risk of infection. You can get scar tissue on the inside that can lead to challenges down the road. You could injure other organs. Um, you do need a general anesthesia, so an overnight stay in the hospital. So it's not for nothing, which is why we don't just take it out. If you're not already going to, if you don't have a clinical indication or you're not having surgery for other reasons. But what we're trying to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, is find ways to use less antibiotics so that we yeah. don't build up antibiotic resistance. So that's what I thought was interesting about this. Why would you choose antibiotics when a relatively safe surgery, relatively easy, mm-hmm. finger quote, surgery would... Um, uh, avoid that. And that's one of the other interesting parts of the study. So as I said, it was a very strict regimen, I would say. They had three days of IV antibiotics, which mandated it that, they st- that the patients were in the hospital for those three days. And then they did a week of oral antibiotics, which is a pretty extensive regimen, very broad spectrum antibiotics. So as you mentioned, antibiotic resistance is a real risk. And they talked about that kind of in their commentary on their study, that this is a risk and in future studies, they should look at narrowing the spectrum of antibiotics. But because it's so you know new, it would be tough for anybody to say, well, how long would you treat that for and what antibiotics would be the right? So that's why they did such a broad spectrum. But there is a risk if we treated everybody with that num- you know, that level of antibiotics that we could be developing antibiotic resistance. In their study, they found it was relatively better or not really better, but less inferior to the surgery because they did a lot of open surgeries. Mm-hmm. So the, the cost was lower with antibiotics. Uh, the time away from work was lower. Whereas in this country, if you have the surgery, usually in the hospital overnight, you go home the next day, you're probably out of work for true 7, 14 days maybe at the most, and then you're back to work. So it's it's a pretty limited amount of time. Why, when you were we were starting to talk about this survey, did you say this is this was done in Finland, only a place where Finland could do something well, like this? Yeah. So explain that comment to me. It can be a tough. It can you know it's a it's a it's really amazing that the study got done because you're really presenting a patient you know with here's a potential way that this could be treated. We don't know if it will work or not when they did their initial study, and we don't know if you're going to have increased complications if we give you these antibiotics, right? So they didn't know. Would people get um, more complicated appendicitis? Were they all going to rupture? Were they going to miss cancers? They didn't. They just didn't know. So, in our um, in our country, getting that approved through our IRBs that would be a potential challenge. And then getting patients to agree to that right. when they're in the emergency department, they're in a lot of pain. And now you're trying to tell them, well, you could have this kind of, you know, new age thing that may or may not work, or you can have this surgery that we've done for a long time and we know that it works. So that was a really impressive part to get that done. They also had really good follow-up. You know, there was like 257 patients treated with antibiotics, and in five years they followed 256 of them. That's amazing to follow that many patients for five years and have that information. That's really amazing. So... They did a really great job, and they should. And the the team should be commended on that. They did an amazing job. It's fascinating. We've been talking about treatment for appendicitis with Mayo Clinic trauma and critical care specialist Dr. Erica Loomis. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Loomis. Thank you so much. And that's our program for this week. 
For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.